Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Okay, David, are you nervous? No, I'm really thrilled, actually. Well, maybe a little nervous, but incredibly thrilled. Now, I don't know if he remembers or even cares, but I met Dr. Valet, oh, I guess in the mid 60s. Uh, you think he's going to remember that? I, I doubt it. Probably with a feeling of dread because Jim Mosley was with me at the time. Well, don't start the conversation off with that tone. Don't ask him about that. I am not. Good. I think I will not refer to it. I think I will just leave it in the past. Even Jim doesn't remember it. Well, I don't think Jim remembers a lot of things. <laughs> and there's there's a set of musical tones I'd rather not hear this evening. Well, that set of musical tones will not be played. La, 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 la. Nor do are it. we going do to it. ask him a question that relates to those musical tones Up that up. we didn't hear. It's already been done. Everybody does that. Why would we do that? We're not going to do that. We're going to ask him intelligent questions that will be both revealing and compelling. My and two he, favorite words. That's right. He won't walk off in the middle of the interview. He won't do that. Well, listen, after hearing the recent interview where he was asked about uh, angels and demons, um, yeah, he won't walk off because uh, he sounds like a very nice, very sincere, and very calm and collected person. Well, that certainly sets us apart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're calm. We're collected. We're cool. What's yeah, the they're problem? going to collect us right now, as a matter of fact. They're at the door with the white coats. Oh, boy. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, that's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Jacques, a lot of people who have studied UFOs over the years got started either with a sighting or by reading stuff on the subject, as I did when I was 11 years old, and David can cite a comparable experience. In your case, how were you exposed to it? Well, I actually became involved uh, in in two ways. First, uh, I, I did see something uh, very striking when I was about 15. Uh, my uh, my mother actually saw it first. She was working in the yard and 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 uh, called out. And uh, what I saw was, you know, essentially a saucer. I, uh, and this was in the middle of the afternoon near Paris, about 30 miles, 25 miles away from Paris. Um, and the object was motionless. Was about the size of of the full moon, and then it um, it disappeared. It, uh, it flew away. Now I probably would have thought that it was some sort of strange prototype and so on, which is what my father thought it was. Except that a friend of mine, who was about a mile away, up on the hill, uh, saw it through binoculars and described it in exactly the same. Uh, the same terms as as what um, what I saw. That stayed with me. It stays with me. You know. Now we never reported it to anybody, and uh, I sort of forgot about it uh, or convinced myself that it must have been some strange uh, contraption that was being tested until. I read um, the books of Henri uh, Michel, who had done the first real analysis of, of the, the sightings from 1954 in France, and this was a couple of years later. By then, I was studying astronomy, and um, I became fascinated with what Henri Michel had done because he he didn't start from the position of of arguing for or against the. Uh, you know any particular hypothesis about UFOs, but he said, "Look, the, these things uh, show up according to certain patterns, and the, the patterns indicate that we have a new phenomenon." And that really um, interested me. At the time, I did not call or write to um, Amy Michel. I just was impressed with his book. But another couple of years went by, and then I was a young astronomer at Paris Observatory, tracking satellites. And on successive nights, at uh, a certain period, we saw an object we could not identify. That certainly was not one of the... And in those days, this was 1961, uh, the summer of 1961, there were very few satellites visible with the naked eye in the sky. 
The main one was ECRO, which was designed to be visible, to be clearly visible, uh, so that people could do orbit computations based on it. And um, what we saw had absolutely nothing in common with uh, the, the regular satellites or ECHO. Uh, for one thing, it was retrograde. We got 11 data points on the magnetic tape, and the man in charge of the project erased the tape. And that's really what got me started. Up to then, I could rationalize about anything. I thought astronomers would tell us if they saw something strange in the sky. After all, the only ones who are looking at the night sky, and then I, I discovered that wasn't true, that even astronomers would erase uh, the, the data for fear of ridicule. Mm, and that's really what got me started. So it was fear of ridicule and not any sort of a policy put in place to intentionally destroy the data? No, at, at that point, I think it was uh, simply fear of ridicule. I, I asked, why didn't we send the data to the Americans? since we were part of the geophysical year or the system that had been put together uh, during the geophysical year of uh, uh, networking data among major observatories. And uh, it could have remained confidential if we had done that. We were just sending telexes to the um, U.S. Embassy and they were sending it to the Navy uh, through the Navy channels to the Smithsonian in the U.S., and uh, the Smithsonian was computing orbits and sending us back the, the orbital elements. And uh, we were doing that, you know, and it was a, a routine astronomical operation. And uh, the men in my bus said the Americans would laugh at us if we sent this. And he was, I don't think Americans realize the prestige of American science is such that you don't want to be, you don't want to look ridiculous in, in front of an American scientist when you, when you're a French, a French scientist or a French institution. So a lot of those things are just destroyed or never reported. Do you think that the same sort of thing was going on on the American side of the equation? Uh, the, exactly the same sort of things. When uh, I worked, of course, later, as you know, with Dr. Hynek uh, at Northwestern University, I told that story to Hynek, and he had saved sightings from the same period uh, from um, Harvard College and, and the Smithsonian, things that were going to be thrown out that were including photographs of the same um, the same hmm. object and the photograph taken the same in the same range of, of nights when we were doing our measurements. And the thing was never seen again. Now that doesn't mean that it was a UFO or, you know, flying saucer or whatever. It it could have been an equally interesting phenomenon. It could have been an asteroid caught in Earth orbit for a few orbits. Uh, it could have been a number of, of, of other things. Well, you know, I want to ask you here with regard to Dr. Heinick. Now, of course, Dr. Heinick was also a big skeptic with UFO in terms of UFO reality early on. Of course, we all know about the infamous swamp gas explanation to certain UFO sighting. So at what point did you come to know him before or after his change of viewpoint or posture about the subject? Well, I think there, is a, um, there are a couple of misconceptions about Dr. Heinick's position uh, in, with respect to the phenomenon. As I got to know him, he, he got into science, and especially in astronomy, uh, driven by a sense of very in intense sense of mystery. He was looking for the limitations of science. He was, I, I wouldn't say a, a mystic, but he certainly had interest in mysticism. And after his death, by the way, he asked for his 
part of his books to be given to me. So I have his collection of, of books on uh, esoteric matters and uh, books that have his uh, marginal annotations. So I and I treasure those. Uh, they uh, certainly show what what he was thinking as he was as a young man as he was uh, studying some esoteric philosophies and. Of course, in the early years, in 47, 48, when he first became exposed to the phenomenon uh, through the Air Force and, and the work he did with Project Sign and, and so on, in the early days of Project Blue Book, he pretty much had to be skeptical because the the cases were reported in a way that, you know, there, there was very little that was really tangible that he could take to his colleagues. At that point, the, the entire scientific community was was skeptical, and people thought, and, and he would say that very often, uh, you know, he thought it was like, you know, the swallowing uh, goldfish, or it was a fad, you know, something that people saw in the sky. After all, after the tensions of uh, of the war, you know, there were all kinds of crazy things that people did or thought or saw and so on. And he thought it was just a fad that would disappear after a year or two, and of course it didn't. And he became interested, and he kept his position, hoping that at some point there would be something would reveal itself that would be of true scientific significance. And as we know, we do have lots of sightings, but we still don't have anything that you know can be convincingly shown to the Academy of Sciences, and uh, or at least uh, nothing in uh, you know in the civilian files. And he was always on the lookout for for better data, and he was monitoring that stream of data. In 1958, uh, just to show you his serious interest, he traveled to France with Gérard de Vaucouleur, who was, uh, later was my boss in Texas, was the head of the uh, astronomy department at the University of Texas, Austin. They traveled together to Paris to meet with Dr. Guérin, who was a, uh, a former student of de Vaucouleur in France, and to meet with Amy Michel and to go through Amy Michel's files after his book was published. And both of them were seriously impressed. But again, they didn't have anything solid enough to take to the scientific community. It's only when I met with Heineck in 1963, I brought my files. And my files included a lot of the, the, the data that I had um, screened from the European files and most of the data from the main shell. And, but I had indexed all that. I had you know, screened out 90% of uh, the data that was explainable, and uh, I had put all that in, on the computer with my wife, and we were showing some patterns that were not the patterns of normal natural phenomena. And that's what changed Dr. Heineck's opinion of the phenomenon. And that's when he decided to come out cautiously. He was a very cautious man. He was not somebody looking for confrontation. He thought that wouldn't serve any purpose. We did not have solid enough data to rush to the, the academy. But he thought that there was indeed a phenomenon there. And the first manifestation of that was when he decided to write the forward to my second book, which was called The Challenge to Science, uh, The UFO Enigma, which I, I wrote with my wife. 
Now, Jacques, when you talk about uh, the files that you had collected to that point, we assume that a good amount of that data had been acquired from colleagues of yours who were perhaps having um, similar experiences in terms of satellite tracking, perhaps direct sightings of UFOs. Was there already, I guess it sounds like there was a duality in a portion of the scientific community where people like yourself and perhaps some of your colleagues were, were seeing things that didn't fit into standard models but at the same time, and of course, I would think that as scientists, uh, inquisitive minds, that this would this would be interesting, if nothing else, to them. But then there was this duality of they have this. Perhaps you have this information, but you won't talk about it. Have you seen this duality sort of proceed through the years? Has it remained somewhat consistent? Do you think? Uh, yes, it has. Uh, the, the data I had in um, you know 62, 63 came from a, a variety of sources. Some of it I, I had um, had access to the files of the French Air Force. The French Air Force in the 50s had started to collect data. They've never really published all that, although that's been made available to a few researchers uh, like myself, like Jean-Claude Bourret and others, and to Jepon uh, uh, later. Jepon, uh, as you know, is uh, an organization which um, still exists and is doing research and, and uh, on the phenomenon in France. They had about 200 cases uh, that came from pilots and from uh, radar operators and uh, from uh, control tower operators and, and their personnel. Uh, it wasn't very extensive. Again, it didn't really prove anything except that you know, serious people, uh, technically trained people, were seeing things that did not match normal patterns. Right. They did some analysis, but really didn't. Um, they, they never started a, a true scientific study of it. Much of it came from the press, from the media that um, some friends had collected, including Amy Michel. And a lot of it came from letters that had been written to Amy Michel by people in France after his book was, was published. His book was very successful, and he got hundreds of letters from, from people all over, all over the, the world, actually. You know, so, now Amy Michel is a researcher that people really don't hear about so much these days. Now, I remember his books. I read the American translations of some of his books way back when that really ages me. Can you tell our listeners something about him? Yes, he was, I would say, mainly a philosopher of science. He was a writer, a science writer. He was also very much a philosopher. He's left several books of philosophy. He was a, a very, very intelligent, very unique mind. He had had uh, poliomyelitis when he was a kid, so he was crippled. Uh, he came from uh, the Alps um, and was very much in love with his his village uh, high up in the, the mountains. Had a very, very extensive uh, library, read uh, Latin and Greek in the original text, and was just uh, was very much a scholar, especially a scholar of um, the history of science. And uh, he worked uh, with the French radio and television establishment and uh, was in contact with many intellectuals in France, including Jean Cocteau. And one time uh, was discussing a, a, a case of UFOs seen by children, and he was showing that to Jean Cocteau as uh, something that children had probably made up. And Jean Cocteau told him, you should look into this uh, seriously. Uh, the, this is not something that the, the kids have invented. And that's what really got him started looking seriously at the data.
Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Dr. Jacques Vallée joins us. I call him a world-class UFO theorist, and he's free to amend that, but he has certainly been a strong force in terms of providing a lot of intellectual and philosophical enlightenment about UFOs over the years. Now, at the early 50s especially, the common perception of UFOs was that the aliens were among us. But I gather at some point in time, your opinions about what they might be was modified, morphed into a different realm. Can you tell us this journey? Uh, yes. Well, in the 50s, of course, everybody was still under the aura, if you will, of, of World War II. Uh, rockets, uh, the early rocket experiments, of course, after the, the, the German uh, V1s and V2s. Uh, every country was looking for new technology, and, and there was this enthusiasm for technology. Certainly, as a, as a young astronomer, I was caught up in that, and most of the people who studied UFOs in, in those years were thinking in terms of a visitation by extraterrestrials. After all, that is, we know from astronomy that the probability of life in space is overwhelming. There is no reason why we should be even you know, above average in the, in the range of life and intelligence uh, here on Earth. And certainly in, in the last few years, in the last decades, so many external solar systems have been discovered that now that's not even a question anymore that life must exist throughout the universe. So if they are out there, they certainly should be able to come here. And um, that was very much the, the initial model. And it still is probably one of the, one of the best hypotheses you, you could make. After all, the, the universe is big enough to accommodate all kinds of different um, races and forms of consciousness and forms of life. However, and you kindly uh, describe me as a theorist. I, I don't think of myself as a theorist. I think theories are premature. I've certainly looked at different theories. I've tried to contribute to that. But I've really, if there is a contribution I've, I think I've made, it's by being in the field. And I still spend a lot of time listening to witnesses and trying to um, understand what they have seen and interview them without putting my, my words into their, their discourse. 
a lot of the people in this field, the, the problem that ufology has is that people already know the answer. And the answer is mm -hmm. that we're being visited by aliens. And when you go into the field and you go interview witnesses, or even worse, when you uh, hypnotize witnesses from the point of view that you know the answer and the answer is little aliens from, um, you know, Zeta Reticuli, then uh, you're going to get exactly the same thing that you're projecting. And that's not the way you do science, and certainly not the way psychologists would, would do a study. You have to be very patient. You have to approach the, the witnesses. First, you have to, to protect them. And you have to allow them the, the space and the time to describe what their perceptions have been. And I, I've tried to do that. I've trained myself, and I continue to train myself to, to get better at, at doing this. And what you get is something that's very complex. If at any time I was, I had the arrogance of thinking that I and a few friends, uh, a few scientists uh, would be able to solve this problem, you know, that arrogance, I, I've, I've lost that arrogance a long time ago. I'm in awe of this phenomenon. It is an extraordinary phenomenon. It is global. It has always been with us on the Earth. Uh, this is not something that started with Kenneth Arnold saw something over Mount Rainier, you know, in 1947. It was there before. It has been described in every culture on Earth, and um, it's still here. And it has an amazing range of it's associated with an amazing range of, of phenomena, some of which are physiological, some of which are physical. Some of it are psychological and reflect our own the perceptions, the, the limitations of our perceptions. So you have to take all that into account. And when you do, the only problem with the uh, ET hypothesis, at least the first degree, you know, first level ET hypothesis, is that it just doesn't plain, you know, plain doesn't explain the facts. So what do you do when the hypothesis uh, doesn't explain the facts? Well, you, you look for another hypothesis. And you try to generalize, you try to go higher, you try to open the spectrum of hypotheses. And that's very difficult for the public to do, which is why the media, whenever the media do a, you know, a documentary or an interview, they always start from the point of view of either this is all garbage, you know, people are hallucinating and dreaming and so on, or making it up, or we're being visited by aliens. And everything in ufology today has been in those two extremes, in, in, in those two, uh, two parts. And uh, you can only do that if you ignore the facts, which is very uh, tempting to do. It's almost as if the polarization of society in general extends itself into every area of inquiry. Uh, this doesn't seem to escape from that polarization. And, of course, it, it always seems like you're, you're more likely to find truth in the middle versus out on the extremes. Now, uh, Jacques, you bring up the historical aspect of this phenomenon. As you've studied it, what have you been able to learn about this phenomenon as it's played out over history? Uh, it, certainly there are a lot of questions that we want to ask you about, even just the morphology of the different types of craft that have been seen, if indeed they're craft, which of course is a whole other question. But what have you been able to glean in terms of lines of behavior that would indicate a correlation uh, between different times in history with this phenomena uh, appearing? Uh, and how do you differentiate how this phenomenon has has presented itself? Essentially, in, in I would answer you in four four sentences. First, 
unknown phenomena that, of course, in the old days were described as celestial wonders or prodigies, have made a major impact on the on, on the witnesses, on the imagination and the senses of, of witnesses. This goes back, and, and of course, when you when you go back in history, you have to take into account the the cultural context and what you know uh, prophet ezekiel was describing is not the same thing that for example uh, casanova or goethe would have uh, would have described when when they saw strange lights or what you know, an astronomer like messier would have would have described and all these men by the way did see unidentified objects and described them and we you know we tend to forget that but at one time in in the history of astronomy people did record very, very carefully all the phenomena that were unknown to them, and among those you will find a, a number of, of things that match the, you know, today's description of a, of a UFO. Every epoch has interpreted the phenomena in its own terms, in usually or very often in a religious or political context. And it's fascinating to read those things. Uh, you, you will find pamphlets or broadsheets uh, from uh, medieval Europe, and usually they are in two parts. The first part describes a phenomenon which today we can recognize. Uh, now, don't forget they were phenomena like they certainly did not understand what meteors were. They did not understand the aurora borealis, which can be an extraordinary display. You know, it can last for hours in in the sky. But we can recognize now that we understand those phenomena, and we know they are natural phenomena or things in the atmosphere. We can recognize what they were describing. So you have something from the 17th century that would say, uh, last night, um, you know, everybody in this village saw the sky open up, and they were green and blue and red. Uh, drapes in the sky and out of that came balls of light that seemed to fight and it reminded us of a great war in heavens and uh, the sky was illuminated with all these colors that we have never seen before in our lives. So that's the first part. And when we read this now, we say, well, you look where they were on the map, you see that they were at a northern latitude uh, from which you would expect people to see uh, an aurora once in a while, and we know what it was. And we know it was not a UFO. But then the second part says, God is sending us these portents to tell us to amend our ways and to pray more and and that we should pray for the king so that he is successful in his um, endeavors. So you, you have both a phenomenon which is very carefully described, so carefully that we can usually tell what the phenomenon was, and and then you have the interpretation which is historical or, or religious or uh, moralizing, very often it's a moralizing thing in the form of some poem or some prayer. It's fascinating to read those things, and of course in, when I wrote Passport to Magonia, I, was, I knew I was just uh, scratching the surface. Those things were very, very difficult to uh, to find because they were hidden in museums. Not hidden, but they were they were usually in the basement of some museum. Now the, the major museums are putting that online on the internet, and it's a lot easier to to gain access to all that. So we find you know hundreds of those things, and among those you have certainly many of them are explainable. You have lots of meteors and 
and, and lots of just aerial phenomena and atmospheric illusions and so on, three suns and crosses in the sky. Crosses in the sky were, of course, interpreted immediately in a religious context. Of course. But crosses in the sky are you know, normal uh, atmospheric phenomena. And then you find UFOs. You find things that today we, we really cannot explain, and uh, very often they are well described by multiple witnesses. The impact of those um, sightings have, has shaped human civilization in, in very important ways. And the lessons that we can draw can be, you know, can be applied to what's still reported today and, and remains unexplained today. So I, I think it's very important to do that kind of study. Now, when you talk about the intersection between, uh, for example, aerial phenomena and religion, of course, something that comes instantly to mind that I know that you've written about is the episode, uh, the Fatima episode in 1917, where you, you seem to have many kinds of aspects of the of the situation that would reflect what we would now consider to be a UFO sighting, along with tens of thousands of people witnessing this. How is it that this has been sort of relegated to the heap of religious? phenomenon and, and, and not interpreted in terms of uh, its, I think, and, and I'm wondering what you think about this, its obvious connection to the, the elements that we would now consider to be a classic UFO sighting. It's a fascinating phenomenon. It's, a, it's understandable that it should be um, interpreted in, in religious terms, both by the skeptics who say, well, you know, it's religious exaggeration and so on, and by the believers, uh, because the, the, the witnesses, of course, thought that they were seeing a manifestation of the Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. and they said that. And if it was just what happened you know, on um, October uh, 13, 1917, in Fatima, I, I would be, I, you know, I probably would be among the skeptics because what, what they saw was they were staring at the sun after a rain. The sky was very both clear and you know, it, it's difficult to, to describe. I've, I've been, I've gone back to Fatima in October and I was there after the rain. And uh, the sun was coming out of the clouds. And if you, I can understand that if you stared at the sun under those conditions, the atmosphere was loaded with humidity, and uh, you you would see colors, uh, you would see phenomena that you know could could approximate what people were describing. Of course, I wasn't there in 1917. There were 70,000 people there, many of them skeptics who had come to ridicule the witnesses and and the and the priests. And the, and the believers, seventy thousand people is a big crowd. It's one of out uh, out of every uh, seventeen people in Portugal at the time. Mm -hmm. Portugal was a socialist country, had a socialist government in 1917. So not all those people were, you know, fanatical Catholics. What I find fascinating in Fatima is not what happened in 1917, although it's you know it's interesting enough. It's how it started, and it started two years before. It started with uh, shepherds, and the landscape, by the way, hasn't changed very much. Of course, in Fatima now there's a, a huge uh, basilica and parking lots for the buses and so on. So they, they've really destroyed the landscape around the place where the sighting was done. But if you go just 10 miles away, it's a very, very beautiful landscape and still the same kind of, of uh, country country life with goats in the fields and so on. And 
and uh, so I, I spent time um, uh, walking around there. The, the, the shepherds saw a light. They saw a globe of light at ground level. And uh, they saw it several times. Those were not the same shepherds, by the way. There was, they were sort of related, um, they were sort of cousins of the, the witnesses who were then at Fatima two years later. And they saw this globe of light, and they saw an entity inside the globe of light. And that is, you know, a classic. Mm-hmm. It, it starts like like a classic series of of UFO cases. That entity, they never called it the Virgin Mary. They thought it was it was white and glowing, so they 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 called it an angel. And it was just a silhouette that was inside this globe. The, the physiological reaction or psychological reaction was was very striking. They were I wouldn't say paralyzed, but they were in a kind of stupor when they saw this. And this is also is not unlike what some UFO witnesses describe today, that they were either paralyzed or they were they couldn't tell the time that elapsed. They couldn't they found themselves sort of repeating certain words and they felt that those words came from this entity that they ended up after a while calling the angel of peace. Now that stopped, this was in 1915. And you don't find that in most books about Fatima. Most books about Fatima talk about the apparition of the Virgin and they go on from there. Of course in 1917, then a light was seen uh, above a tree uh, at Kovadaya near uh, Fatima itself. And over a period, it appeared on the 13th of every month, uh, except for one month when the mayor of the town had put the kids in jail so that they wouldn't, because he was tired of people congregating at that particular place uh, month after month after month. And, uh, of course, that only encouraged people to, to come in greater number, and um, they just couldn't stop the crowds uh, coming to the place. And in the culminating, in, in the final um, apparition, there were, again, 70,000 people, and the, 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 the children were sure that they had seen the Virgin and gotten the message from the Virgin. The people there didn't see any such thing. What they saw was a disc that they described as a silver disc. The sun turned into a sort of silver disc that was spinning with all kinds of colors around it. Mm. And, you know, if you could argue, again, none of us was there, you could argue that they had been staring at the sun uh, through this very, very damp atmosphere too long, and, and they saw these uh, these colors. And, uh, you know, the, the clouds, when, when I was there a couple of years ago, four years ago, the, the clouds were iridescent. And if you, the, the, when the sun came in and out of clouds, you, you could see those, you could see bright colors. Now, I, I didn't see a, a silver disk, and I didn't see, you know, rays emanating from it sweeping the ground. I didn't see any of that. But, again, if you stare at the sun too long, uh, you, you will have some of these effects. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 
888-242-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Dr. Jacques Fillet joins us. He's author of books and articles about UFOs, been studying the phenomenon for a long, long time. And right now we're talking about the incident at Fatima, which... When you look at it from your point of view and the way you're observing it, sounds very much like classic UFO sightings. It, it certainly would have to be um, studied alongside um, a, a number of UFO sightings that have uh, have the same characteristics. Now, now, when you when you go back in history and you do some statistics about the, those hundred of unexplained cases, you find approximately the same ratio of close encounters, you know, things in the sky, close encounters claims of material traces, and even abductions that we have now. Now, as far as the abduction scenario, Jacques, I know in, in reading some of your work, there are certain problems you have, perhaps not with the witnesses themselves, but with the process of hypnosis. You also bring up some really fascinating points about the descriptions of humans being used as part of a hybridization process. You make the really, uh, I think, very salient point that uh, based on our even our current technology, that the sorts of procedures that we hear described um, are, are not what you would expect to find if indeed you had a real situation where there was some species attempting to uh, to extract our genetics and work with them in some way. Um, so that being the case, why do you feel people are reporting situations that that don't seem to fit into what we know about genetic manipulation? What portion of this is implanted by the hypnotist, and what portion of it do you think reflects the actual experience or the perception of an actual experience? Um, well, here you're opening up um, a big issue, a big series of issues. I've studied about 70 cases, 70 cases of, of abductions. Many of them, I've met the, the witnesses and had a, a chance to interview them. I've never hypnotized anybody. I'm not trained in hypnosis. Uh, in a few cases, the, uh, these people wanted to be hypnotized, and I arranged for them, in a couple of cases, to be hypnotized by professional uh, clinical psychologists. And uh, we did that under the standards of uh, admissibility in court, which is not what ufologists are doing, by the way. Right. Ufologists right. just put people under and go on from there and ask them a bunch of, usually a bunch of leading questions. Exactly. That's what I've always worried about with abductions, yeah. that the hypnotist is kind of guiding either consciously or unconsciously or because of incompetence, the so-called abductee to remember certain experiences. It's actually even worse than that because, as you may know, I've had a long, long-term interest in parapsychology. 
And it's a fact that hypnosis enhances uh, thought transference between the patient and the hypnotist. Now, many uh, many ufologists don't believe. I'm not interested in parapsychology. I'm not even conscious of that that effect. That effect has been documented. Uh, was documented early in this century by uh, by psychologists. And um, so that that's an additional uh, danger. I think they. If there is any hypnosis done, it should be only in very, very, very specific cases, and it should be done by hypnotists who are not ufologists. You can give them a list of questions. You can you can train them in uh, you know what to ask a, um, a UFO witness, but it uh, it should not be done by by ufologist, and especially not by a ufologist who thinks that he already has the answer. And but you know I don't want to go too far into that. Um, you know uh, it's just. Any clinical, trained clinical psychologist will tell you that hypnosis should only be used in, in very, very specific cases. And if you look at the, at the literature, and I've spent time with, with the professional hypnotists and with people who are teaching hypnosis to clinical psychologists in California, uh, showing them what ufologists were doing, and they were horrified. I mean, if you, if you show them the, the, the books that are circulating, where you know, uh, people who've had a missing time experience are immediately hypnotized, re-hypnotized, and re-hypnotized until they get it. And what they get is the standard story that the uh, ufologists are selling, essentially, or are promoting in their books. The uh, number one is completely unethical. It's completely unprofessional. And it's not going to get you closer to the truth. So it's a last opportunity to learn something about the UFO phenomenon, in my view. And the result is, as you pointed out, I mean, the result is the, the idea that the aliens are here to get genetic material and so on is, is completely absurd when, when you look at the, the evidence. Well, also, I think that when people talk about hypnosis, it's probably important to point out, and I'm guessing that a clinical psychologist would, would, would likely agree with this, that historically hypnosis has proven very useful for behavior modification, uh, the introduction of new patterns of thought, and perhaps a little less useful for the uh, regression of people to a prior state, and I think that that's something that people get a little confused about. Well, and there is one one book that uh, any would-be ufologist should read. Um, it's a book by Dr. Lindner, L-I-N-D-N-E-R, called The 50-Minute Hour. Uh, the 50-Minute Hour is the psychiatric session the typical psychiatric session where a you know patient comes in and says uh, hello doctor how are you and the doctor says well please uh, sit down and and let's talk and and then in the next 50 minutes uh, they uh, study the, the the case of of this patient and the patient talks about his problems or her problems well dr lindner when he retired compiled about something like 10 or 12 of his most interesting cases and most of them have to do with obviously with uh, the theory and practice of psychiatry but there is one chapter called the jet propelled couch and <laughs> that chapter is remarkable because he was approached by by the FBI this was in the 50s he was approached by the FBI asking him very gingerly if 
he would agree to work for the government in treating um, an engineer, uh, a chief engineer of a, I think the man was at Los Alamos or at Alamogordo. He had uh, a team of engineers under his, you know, uh, his uh, control. Uh, and they were obviously working on, on some secret project and except that he wasn't working anymore he was spending all his time in his office just doodling and, and dreaming and, and writing things that nobody could understand and um, they obviously wanted, um, wanted him treated but treated by someone who uh, would preserve the confidentiality and the, 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 the currencies of, you know, of what this man was working on and that was to Lindner was a, a challenge because this man, the, the patient, was at least as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than he was, and knew more about science than he did. The whole chapter, I, I won't, you know, I, I won't deflower the, the the punchline, but it's it's absolutely remarkable. The man had convinced himself that he could travel psychically throughout the universe, and that in fact he was the commander of a fleet of spaceships, and. In his, I don't think he's uh, talking about me. I just want to make sure. He had extensive files, hundreds of reports, scientific reports, engineering reports, about the, uh, the science and the technology and even the anthropology and the philosophy and the languages of all of these civilizations he was visiting. I mean, this was a long time before Star Trek, but it was... Uh, he had hundreds of these files, and he brought those files to Dr. Lindner, and they started studying them together. Now, Lindner says, well, obviously he thought the man was deluded. Um, he um, uh, just didn't do any, any work anymore, so his, his unit was without a leader. And Lindner considered hypnotizing him. And he explains very clearly why he rejected the idea of hypnosis. That he thought that this could be, this probably was a delusion, and then the hypnosis would make the delusion part of this man's reality. And then he would never be able to then wean him or guide him away from that delusion. And that, uh, for that reason, hypnosis was the wrong tool. Well, that's you know, pretty much the, the, the psychiatrist and the psychologist I've consulted have all told me the same thing. Please don't, you know, let's not hypnotize these people unless they, unless they really want to be hypnotized to recall a particular event. Uh, and even so, in the one case where we went very far with, with a young man who worked in Silicon Valley had approached me about being hypnotized because he was very troubled by something in his past, what we found was that the event that was traumatic was not what he thought it was. It was something that happened years before, and that it was extremely traumatic, and that it um, didn't have anything to do with UFOs. And at that point, they stopped the hypnosis, and they advised him to seek um, you know, normal therapy. And that's exactly the point where you know a, a ufologist would have would have pressed forward and rehypnotized and rehypnotized these people. I I have letters that are you know heart wrenching letters in my files from people who say 
you know, I've been, I, I'm the person referred to in this particular book on UFOs. I've been hypnotized, you know, n, uh, n times by um, a, a ufologist. My life has become a nightmare. Um, he's convinced me that I was visited by, by aliens who wanted to harm me. I want to be hypnotized now by somebody who knows what he's doing. And of course, no hypnotist will re-hypnotize somebody uh, who has been uh, handled that way. So these people are, I, I don't know what advice to give them. The, the, the main theory, uh, if we take a minute to, you know, as you were mentioning, the main theory is that, well, the aliens are here, they are creating a hybrid race for some reason, and uh, they want to uh, abduct our women to uh, have hybrid babies. And they do that, you know, thousands of times all over the world. They've been doing that for 40 years. Well, well, for one thing, the hybrid babies would be uh, would be teenagers or would be adults by now. We should start seeing them, and we don't see them. But although there are some strange people in the streets from time to time. Well, of course, some are actually are in government. I understand. Yes. <laughs> no, I wanted to ask you though. You raise an interesting question here. What about, for example, Barney and Betty Hill? Because they went to what a psychologist, a psychiatrist, to analyze them and to do some kind of hypnotic regression. So yes. that obviously was not a ufologist to perform that particular No, no, it was a real psychiatrist. Dr. Simon was, was a, a real uh, MD psychiatrist that worked uh, with the army uh, during the war, uh, was used to um, dealing with people in shock. Uh, they were in shock. Now, he saw them a couple of years after the sighting itself. I don't remember the exact uh, timing, but the sighting was in uh, 1961 in the mountains of, uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. I spent two days with Betty and Bonnie Hill, Dr. Simon, and uh, John Fuller, who wrote the book. And it was a very interesting two days. We listened to the tapes. Uh, they are terrifying. And they were, if you recall, they were hypnotized separately, with Betty uh, being, you know, separate from uh, mm -hmm. from Barney in, in the, the hypnosis sessions. And they were not allowed to listen to each other's tapes until uh, after the, uh, the the end of the sessions. I believe them. I, I believe that they saw an extraordinary thing. Uh, if you remember, I found a radar tracking of an unknown object that same night in that area. There, there was something in the sky. After they uh, lost their sense of time, it's very hard to know what happened. So I took Dr. Simon aside, and you know, again, we had spent my, my wife and I had. My wife is a psychologist by training, by the way. We had spent two days um, with with them on their property. New Hampshire. I took Dr. Simon aside and I said, Doctor, do you think that what they saw was real? And he said, I have no way of answering that. I can only tell you that this was real to my patient. Mm -hmm. In other words, it was in their reality. This is not something that, it's not a dream, it's not something they made up. To them, it's real. And I said, well, Doctor, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if you and I had been sitting in the back seat of that car with Barney driving and Betty next to him, uh, what would we have seen? And he said, I have no way of answering that question. Mm. A little too hypothetical. Yes. So he was, you know, very, very professional, and I, you know, in retrospect, that's the only, uh, only answer he could give me. Having having read the book uh, that uh, Kathleen Martin and Stan Friedman released last year, it almost sounds like he was attempting to 
sway the Hills from the idea that they had had this type of a reaction, an experience. Um, well, he said so himself. That at the beginning, he thought that they were having nightmares. Uh, they were, you know, a mixed race uh, couple. They uh, had been driving for a long time in, on a pretty lonely road. By the way, I've driven that road at night. It is lonely, and, and uh, you have mountains on both sides. And it, um, it's his first thought was uh, this is going to be a classic case of uh, nightmares. Uh, shared by and it's interesting nightmares because they are shared by this couple. Um, I think fairly rapidly he went away from that and convinced himself that this was uh, this was much more complex. Mm-hmm. So here's the problem that we face, shock with this, which is we have um, human beings with the imperfections of their perception, and uh, certainly uh, what appears to be a, a trend of malleability of sensory input devices, certainly when it comes to uh, any kind of UFO or paranormal activity. The question is, how do we establish some sort of an objective baseline, if that's even possible, given that this is such a subjective topic? Is there a way, or, or how would you, as a researcher, create the equivalent of an objective baseline without having the, the corroboration of, for example, physical trace evidence, is it possible to come up with a series of uh, parameters that would indicate that something is perhaps, I mean, in a case, let's say, of a sighting where you have multiple people, so you have now an ability to do some sort of triangulation versus an individual who, you know, maybe you don't know their mental state, maybe you don't know anything about, you know, their, their life or their, their cultural framework. Is it possible to be objective in the study of these kinds of experiences when very often all you have to go on are memories, in which case many of those memories might be repressed. Well, you have to realize that we, we have all these theories floating around, but the research has never been done. I mean, there has been no science done on this phenomenon. Uh, there are scientists, there were scientists who were involved and are involved, you know, people like certainly Dr. Hynek, uh, certainly um, Dr. Guérin in France, uh, in this country, uh, of course, Jim McDonald, uh, Peter Sturak, uh, a number of scientists have become involved, have studied the cases. But they, uh, they have done that on a personal basis using their training. The way science is, uh, is commonly done when you study a new, new phenomenon or when you want to open a new area is to fund a few, not one team, but several teams with different ideas, different approaches. In my experience, as, as you know, I was involved in computer research, computer network research in the early days of the ARPANET, which became the Internet. There were two or three teams that were funded in parallel with my own team, and we were in both in competition and in collaboration together, and that's, that's the way things are, are done, so that you have a variety of approaches, and in in the case of the UFO phenomenon, that would have to include scientists with an open mind who have some exposure to the phenomenon because this is not something you can do the first day when you when you suddenly become aware of the phenomenon. You have to do your own homework, and you'd want people who've been in the field 
for two or three years, and uh, so that the arrogance has uh, has been uh, dispelled, and, and they are ready to do some some serious work. You have to have an interdisciplinary team. You you have to have some physicists. Uh, you have to have psychologists. You have to have certainly people who could. Uh, you have to have access to a, a network of labs. You don't necessarily need you know a chemist and a biochemist and so on, but uh, although that would be useful, but you need uh, you need access to professional laboratories and, and the money to pay them. Mm. You you don't want to have on the team somebody who does a study of, for example, traces who's never done that before in his life. You want access to a forensic lab that does that every day. Same thing for uh, photo analysis and so on. That kind of team could be assembled. Uh, we certainly would know how to do that. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the work that Dr. Haynes has done with NARCAP, with uh, pilot sightings. The, there are a number of, of teams around the U.S. and around the world that would be very interested in, in donating their time or, or working uh, even full-time on, on something like this. I'll tell you what, we'll pick that up on hour number two. We've been talking to Jacques Vallée on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On hour number two with Dr. Jacques Vallée on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we've been talking about the possible makings of a scientific team to investigate UFOs. Now, what appears to have happened, unfortunately, in the UFO field is that, well, you know, you know how it goes. UFO researchers don't seem to be able to get along, so how can they team up to do research? Well, I think that's well, that's human nature. The, the scientific community has been completely negative about the phenomenon. And as we said at the beginning, in the 50s, uh, that skepticism was, was certainly warranted. Today, there are just too many reliable witnesses, too many technically trained people who have, have reported things that have been documented, have been researched, and um, you know it's, it's time to get serious about this. But the, and, and the government certainly has not helped. Uh, the, the government and the military have kept their own data under wraps um, and occasionally have actually covered up um, cases that should have been investigated, should have been brought to the attention of, of scientists. And in my, my opinion, that's a crime. And um, we're going to pay for that. And we, we pay for that in sociological terms, that people tend to, in the absence of a scientific approach, people conclude that science is incapable of dealing with it, which is not true. I mean, there are, there are many things that science could do. It may not be the ultimate answer, but there are a lot of things that you can do. You, there are things you can measure, you can look for patterns, you can, you can do the, the things that I've started to do and that my colleagues have started to do. And in the absence of that, people jump to conclusions. And, of course, everybody jumps to his own conclusion or her own conclusion, and then they start fighting because it becomes almost like a religious thing. People invest belief in, uh, you know, in 
terms of a solution to the mystery. You know, there's a big thing here every few years about so-called disclosure. We're going to find out the truth about the UFOs. We're going to get the government to reveal everything and we'll be set free. And then, of course, nothing ever comes of it. I think even started back, of course, in the 50s with Major Donald Kehoe. And it goes on every few years. What is your opinion about all that? In a way, um, that's understandable that people would um, would try to solve this problem by lobbying the government. You would think that, but it's, it's also a very naive position to think that the government has the answer. I believe the government has lots of data. As I just said, and I know that there are cases that where we, we know the military has assembled data, by the way, not only in the U.S., but in, in other countries. It's certainly the case in France, uh, certainly the case in England, certainly the case in Russia, that the government has data that it has not revealed, uh, because the witnesses have seen uh, teams in the field gathering data, making measurements, and then you, when you ask about the five, there is no five. And uh, all the files is classified, and you won't have access to it. Now, the fact that they have data doesn't mean they have the answer, and that's where the fallacy right. lies. You know, we have we have data about lots of things that we don't understand. Um, you know, think about uh, disease. Uh, think about uh, you know, think about some of the phenomena in astronomy where we, anybody can get data. And uh, the data doesn't give you the answer. So the data has to be studied, and sometimes it takes teams and of scientists, and it takes years. And uh, sometimes even then, you still don't get to, to the answer. What about the theory that the governments of the Earth, or some of the governments, all of the governments, have actually had contact with whatever is responsible for UFOs? And that's one of the real secrets. What do you think about all that stuff? Well, let me give you another theory. The theory that the secret is that they have no idea what's going on, that they have, they have all this data. They may even have material. They may even have... Because I, people have sent me or I've uh, gotten physical samples that were picked up right after a UFO close encounter. I've published those things and uh, I've had them analyzed by, again, by professional uh, labs. The, the results are puzzling, but there is no question that those things uh, are unusual and that they uh, cor corroborate what the witnesses are saying. But I certainly don't have the answer. The, the government will always have a tendency to project the image of uh, certainly the intelligence communities and the business of trying to convince everybody that it knows everything um, because that's a position of power. And I don't think we should be, I, I don't think in, in science, I don't think that's the way you uh, proceed. Again, uh, the science has not been done, the research has not been done and there have been secret studies, and that's understandable because the one thing we do know about the UFO phenomenon is that it triggers sensors. We have sensors in space, uh, we have sensors in the air, we have sensors on the ground, and we have sensors under the ocean. All of those have been triggered, and we know that, have been triggered by things that were not understood or identified. So. The people who own these sensors, who are very often classified, will get together and will try to understand what's happened to their equipment. And 
when they do that, uh, I mean, those guys are usually our space cadets, and they will look for a quick explanation. The, the first thing is, you know, is it some enemy doing this to us, uh, playing with our sensors? And if they, the answer is no, then, well, it's another one of those things. And they um, don't have all the data. They only have the data about their sensors. Usually the, the people who run the hydrophones for the Navy uh, don't have access to the satellite people who run the, you know, the infrared satellites. The very often things are classified at a very, very high level and it's difficult to share data among the different teams and they may not even be clear to know that the other team exists. The right hand never talks to the left hand. Exactly. Well, you've certainly seen that in you know a number of the crises that have been studied in detail, including 9/11. Yes. Where there's a, the problem is coordination among different teams that have special expertise, and that we fall exactly in the same uh, in the same category. At one time in my life, I, I was involved in congressional hearings about crisis management because we had uh, we were using computer networks to link people together in in very special crisis management situations and listening to the other experts on those panels before Congress you know they showed the extent of the lack of coordination I think we're falling exactly into into that trap that's why it would take an interdisciplinary team and listen I don't think we need the government data uh, they are specific Measurements and analyses that have been done by the Air Force, for example, or by the, the FBI or by the Gendarmerie in France that uh, a team like that would have access to. But we don't need to know if, if it was picked up by a radar with special classified you know, characteristics. We, we don't need to know that. I mean, this could be done in most cases with people who are not cleared. The phenomenon is weird enough as it is. You know? uh, and I know where I would go to get the data I would need You know, if I was a, a member of a team like that. Well, Jacques, let me ask you a question. You mentioned that you actually had received some odd material, some physical evidence that uh, had some unusual aspects upon analysis. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Um, there is a case in 1977 in Council Bluffs, which is a suburb of Omaha, where 11 groups of people saw an object at, uh, after sunset over a park. Mm-hmm. The object had lights on the periphery. It was a disk. It came very low and it ejected a large amount of molten metal that fell on the levee. Police was there within minutes. So you have 11 different witnesses or groups of witnesses who say the same thing. Some of them, of course, it was seen from different geometric positions and so on over this park. This was not late at night. I think it was around uh, 6 or 7. The temperature was freezing. Uh, The uh, people went to the site. I I have a Polaroid picture taken by the police. Uh, It shows a glowing mass of metal. The metal was analyzed, the Air Force was contacted, the police contacted different laboratories, and the, the metal was slag. Well, you know, it, it wasn't extraterrestrial slag, it was slag. Now, how do you get a large quantity of molten metal falling from the sky under those conditions? I, I've published the, the case, uh, 
and um, we studied it at the, the Pocantico um, Colloquium uh, that was organized by uh, Mr. Rockefeller and, and Professor Strzok. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have bits of the metal, if anybody wants to reanalyze it. I don't think that's necessary because it's been analyzed so many times. If you remember the, the case in 1947, um, at, right after Kenneth Arnold, there was also uh, a, a case where flag was emitted by uh, the disc that seemed to be in difficulty. There was a case in South America where I was given some of the metal, the metal was aluminum, the witnesses told the story of having picked up the, the metal when it was, well, it had to wait because it was hot when it fell, but it fell, it had been raining, and it fell in a pool of water. After it cooled down, they picked it up. Of course, I wasn't there, so I can't corroborate exactly what they saw, but the metal tells the same story that the witnesses are telling. It's full of bubbles, and it's essentially aluminum. It's not, you know, Martian aluminum, it's, uh, it's aluminum. Now, there would be models of rotating machines that would use metal as a conductor. Some of those have been proposed, and there are patents for machines like that. Usually, it doesn't use aluminum. It uses other conducting metals, but, you know, be that as it may, you could think of of a rotating machine with a mass of molten aluminum. That's not completely, you know, out of uh, of question. Why, how how it would fly, to my knowledge, nobody has made a flying machine like that. Uh Um, But it's interesting to speculate on what it could be. There are five or six cases like that that I know. There is certainly another dozen cases in the literature where I don't know where the sample is. But, you know, we're not talking about Roswell here. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a crash saucer. We're, We're talking about metal that was ejected from a craft seen by credible witnesses. The Council Bluffs case is especially interesting because the police were there. They can testify that that mass of metal was, um, which was several feet, over several feet, by the way, it was very large, uh, was still melting when they got there. And again, the temperature was below freezing. Well, and the fact that it was glowing seems to indicate that the, the actual material was either, I suppose, hot, or exhibiting some sort of molecular excitement. Um, well, it was it was just hot and molten, and they couldn't pick it up. They had to wait for a while before they they took a sample. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal, and we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net.
Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biendi, and we're talking to Jacques Relais, and he has been covering the UFO enigma from a very, very wide framework of information. And I know in talking to you briefly between the two parts of the show, and we started in part one, to talk about abductions and the Barney and Betty Hill case, of course, that you felt certainly warranted investigation. And you said you really wanted to be reminded about mentioning still another abduction case. So, Yeah, so this one is uh, fairly typical. Uh, this is, and I don't think it's been published before, the witness is a 50-year-old farmer in Switzerland, in Rommersville, Switzerland, named Hans Buchmann. And he was traveling to Sempak, which is a nearby village. And late that evening, he uh, didn't come home. So his wife sent out their, um, their sons to look for him. They knew where he was going to be, so they, they retraced his steps. And they found uh, their father's hat, his coat, his gloves. They found other things uh, on, the, on the path, but they didn't find him. So uh, they, they thought they had been, you know, had been the victim of uh, foul play or something. But they uh, apparently searched for, you know, around the property and so on and didn't find him and didn't find any traces of him. Four weeks later, they got news that he was alive and he was in Milan, in Italy. So two and a half months after he had disappeared, he came back. He did not have a single hair on his head, or on his face, or on his chin. His face was small, swollen. He was interrogated by the authorities. Several people were at the interrogation and took down, what, of course, what he, what he said. What he said was that he had gone over to the next town to pay uh, somebody he owed um, some money to, so he was taking taking money to pay him a, a small amount. And uh, he went there and he stayed there uh, for a while, and then uh, decided, decided to come home and walk through a wood. It was uh, the path was going through a forest, and he suddenly heard a strange noise. He thought it was a swarm of bees, but then he realized it sounded more like music. He was afraid wasn't sure where he was or what was happening. He became disoriented. Uh, he lost, somehow lost his hat and his coat and lost consciousness. But before he lost consciousness, he felt he was being lifted in the air. And he found himself in another country, found himself in Italy, disoriented, confused, no idea where he was. He felt pain and swellings in his face and around his head. And that's how he found himself in Milan. And then he came across somebody uh, of German origin who understood him and took pity on him and we can help him reconnect with his family. Well, the interesting thing is that this happened on, October, on November 15, 1572 in Switzerland. And the, one of the men who uh, was there at the, when the testimony, the official testimony was taken, uh, knew Bookman personally. His name was Cizat, and he wrote, wrote up the case uh, in a collection of chronicles about the history of uh, Switzerland. Well, what do you make of that? Certainly today this would be, um, I mean, this man would be rushed before hypnotists who would, um, mm. you know, ask him all kinds of leading questions. But we have enough here to correlate this kind of testimony. I mean, there is no question this happened. This is in the official chronicles of that town. 
number of people were actually in trouble because at, for a time the, the family suspected that he had been murdered by somebody in the village. So they had started a, um, an inquiry and they had uh, started to interrogate people for under suspicion of murder. So this was well documented. This man recalls being lifted into the air before he lost consciousness. Uh, he had heard first what he thought was a swarm of bees and then music. That's a very common description, by the way, of yeah. before an abduction. And he was found himself in another country. There are many cases like that. Of course, not so. Not all of them are so well documented. Many of them we only know the year or the country, but not the specific place. Here we know the specific place because, again, there was a police investigation. Now, Jacques, in your books, uh, one of the cases that you mention is that of a doctor, who I believe is unnamed in your description of it, who sees a UFO, is uh, hit by a beam, and uh, what was most taken, what I found most fascinating about this, what really took me about this story was that he had some very unusual uh, physiological side effects from this. And then there was uh, the appearance of something which people are very reticent to talk about when they discuss the UFO topic, which is that um, very often there are other anomalous paranormal bits of activity that start to occur. And in the story, that there's a really fascinating healing that occurs with him after he is subjected to this beam. I wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit about this story. Yes. Uh, well, this was the, the man who actually did the investigation was was Amy Michel. Uh, so you know, he sort of certainly should get the credit for the, the investigation. Right. The man lived uh, not in the Alps, but close enough that Amy Michel could could visit with him frequently. I've been in his house, I, I've met his family, um, I've met his his wife and his son. I've even spent time on vacation with him in France. So I got to know him pretty well. The, the story is very, very complex. What the, the UFO story is only part of what happened to him. And the paranormal facets of it, uh, of course, make it even more complex, and that's that's a sore point with many ufologists because they say, look, um, you know, the, the problem is complex enough as it is. Please don't bring up the, these paranormal things. And by the way, most ufologists don't even believe that that there is a paranormal aspect to it. They they think that these are, you know. Uh, nuts and bolts spacecraft that are coming here. <laughs> I've actually said on the show that I'd like to see a single nut or bolt from one of those spacecraft, but uh, uh, yeah, yes, that's it. That's, well, <laughs> not coming your way, no, no nuts and bolts. So I don't think it makes it for us. No, no, that argument, uh, you know, fairly animated argument with uh, one of the senior people at Japan in France arguing that they should document the paranormal aspects. And he said, look, we have 3,000 cases reported through the gendarmes in France, through official channels. Not one of them has any paranormal uh, aspect to the report. Well, there are two answers to that that are very simple. First, you really have to be crazy to call a French gendarme and tell him a story about paranormal events. I mean, it's hard enough to call the gendarmes and tell them that you've seen a flying saucer uh, without telling them that an hour before uh, the phone rang, there was no one on the phone, and then, uh, uh, you know, you thought you saw a ghost in your kid's, um, your kid's bedroom. So people are not going to report this, at least not right. the first time. 
The second problem is that the gendarmes, you know, will show up with a questionnaire, and the questionnaire doesn't include any question about any paranormal incident. Or, you know, it, it's all about, you know, just a fact, man. Uh, just like the you know the police would do here, right. uh, they are not interested in uh, ghosts, okay, uh, or in uh, vague impressions, or if after the sighting you think that uh, you are now able to communicate telepathically with your cat, okay, that's not something that will be in the report because it just doesn't look scientific, and and again the witness isn't going to tell you that if he thinks that 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 happens, so you end up with something that is. Again, you, you only get the answers to the questions you're asking. Unless you do it very, very carefully, and what I try to do is get to know the witnesses over weeks or months. Uh, I go to the site. Um, I um, walk around the place uh, with the witness, with his family, and um, I try to allow time to sort of give time and space for ideas and for recollections from memories to form. Very often, yes, I think the ufologists are right to say that people are repressing certain memories. But the way to bring it back is not to hypnotize them and ask them if they've had um, you know, needles inserted in their navel. The, the way to, to get the memories is to allow... When, when you go to those places, usually the, the people think... They, because, you know, I have a PhD and so on, people think I'm going to give them the answer. I'm going to tell them, oh, yeah, well, what you saw was a new type of helicopter. They are looking, they are hoping that I get there with the answer. All of us have had that experience. You know, I think uh, Dr. Haynes would probably tell you the same story. And People are looking for answers. They, they want to know that they can go on with their life. They've seen something that was very unusual, potentially traumatic. Uh, they want to know that there's nothing wrong with them, that they are sane, and that other people see those things and that they come from Boeing. Now, when you tell them, look, you know, no, Boeing doesn't have anything like that, uh, you know, I think you're sane. Other people have seen things like that. We don't know what they are. Can you tell me more? You know, what was your impression at the time? What did you think it was? Uh, you know, and then when you gain the trust of the witness, that's when they begin to relax, and that's when the real interview process can begin. And, you know, you, you have to allow for that time and that, that space to happen. You have to be, you know, usually I end up in the kitchen with them, and, uh, you know, we're going to have a cup of coffee or tea, and, and um, we're going to... Um, to start going into what the experience means to them, and, and that's when they begin to remember things. And then they'll write to me, you know, a week later, saying, "Well, I just remembered something else that should be part of it." And can you come back so I can show you something and so on? And that's and and, and you go on from there. It's not something that you're going to solve by um, brute interrogation or by filling out a questionnaire. I hate questionnaires. What probably you find also is that people who investigate these things, they're looking at the nuts and the bolts. Here we go, that word, that phrase again, the nuts and the bolts. They're looking for certain things, and they don't ask the questions that will bring out or draw out the witness to tell other things, other side pieces of information that may change the entire complexion of this entire thing. Speaking of changing complexions...
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Seacrane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Seacrane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash crane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free Ccrane catalog. Place your order today. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're in hour number two, immersed in hour number two with Dr. Jacques Vallée, and we're learning about a vast scope of things that are happening that we are finding is wider than the simple scope of UFO knots visiting us from Zeta Reticuli or anywhere else. And that's another point, too. Do you have a feeling here that these beings or whatever they are are coming here from other planets, coming here from other dimensions? coexist with us here on Earth? Have you been in a position to even consider those theories seriously? I've certainly considered them seriously. I wasn't the first one to um, propose theories like that. All I can tell you is what the witnesses tell me. And again, I, I try to listen to them carefully. What they tell me is not that they've seen a spacecraft come and land in their backyard. What they tell me very often is that they've seen something which at first may have been just a light, strange light, uh, strange by its behavior or its maneuvers or its uh, luminosity or its color. And then the light uh, changes gradually into something that they perceive as an object, something that becomes a physical object that leaves traces and um, interacts with the environment. There is heat, uh, there are beams, there is light, there are, you know, all, all those things. Interference with the radio, interference with their car, that's physical. I mean, those are physical events. And then very often it changes shape. It can become transparent or it can become uh, or it can vanish on the spot. Now, spacecraft don't do that. There, there are physical theories, by the way. I have friends who have who, who claim that uh, this doesn't necessarily violate physics as we know it, and there are relativistic effects that could explain things seemingly disappearing on the spot or accelerating in, you know, very, very fast and disappearing in the blink of an eye. 
that's not necessarily a violation of physics as we know it. But when you take the full range of, of things that people describe, you have to come to one possible conclusion that these things can come out of anywhere and any time. And that's where it becomes interesting in terms of physics, because mainstream physics today assumes that there are more than four dimensions. When I first started to talk about that, uh, you know, most ufologists thought I had you know, become crazy because everybody knows there are four dimensions, because that's what they teach us in college. Well, when, uh, at, the, at the time, it was very borderline physical theory. Today, it's not borderline physical theory anymore, uh, not because of UFOs, uh, but because of uh, elementary particle physics and cosmology and, and theoretical physics. Um, certainly, uh, very bright physicists like Michio Kaku and, and others have pointed out that um, it's legitimate to think of the universe as having more than four dimensions. In fact, you have to do that in order to account for some of the phenomena in physics today. That opens up the possibility of parallel universes, the possi possibility of time travel and space travel in ways that would violate physics as we knew it in the 50s. For example, you could have faster than light transportation and you could have uh, time transportation. Now, we don't know how to do it, but certainly the, the equations and the, the, the physical theories of today, again, mainstream physics, plays with models just like that. And, you know, I often think that it's a pity that these people are not looking more seriously at our data in ufology because in UFO cases could be an existence theorem for some of these um, direction, new directions in physics. So I think that's, you know, the studying UFOs is doing good science. I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in uh, professionally. I, I'm, uh, I finance high technology ideas and, um, you know, we, we have to look at things like that. Now, it's funny, Jacques, when you mention that, because I always think back to the book Flatland, where we have the description of a three-dimensional sphere projecting onto a two-dimensional context, and the way that, from the point of view of the two-dimensional beings, the three-dimensional sphere exhibits physical characteristics that completely confuse them as it passes through the two-dimensional slice. They literally see the shape of the object changing. Of course, it starts with a point, and then that point gradually expands into a circle. And then as the sphere continues to move through and it is sliced through the two-dimensional projection, it goes from sphere to concentric circles and then back to, you know, from point to concentric circles back to a point. And I've always thought that that is a sort of an interesting way to think about it. It's very interesting. And it, it, uh, at that point, when it disappears, it, it uh, ceases to be physical in their physics, in the physics right. of their plane. Of course, from our point of view, it's still a sphere. I mean, it's still physical. But to them, it, it's no longer physical. That's right. One of the things, um, you mentioned the O'Hare case, I think, a little bit before. And uh, one of the friends of uh, our show, probably the main friend of our show, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Ritzman and I, uh, actually contributed to that NARCAP report on the O'Hare episode. And one of the things that, that stands out to me 
and seems to reaffirm the idea of a bit of a bending of the laws of physics uh, based on what we what we currently know how to do. Uh, there's an interesting aspect of the O'Hare episode that wasn't widely reported. Um, when the the craft, whatever it was, when it shot straight up and it it punched a hole in the cloud ceiling, which now there's a you know you always see confusion get mixed into this, where then all of a sudden people started mentioning lenticular clouds, not realizing that no, this thing actually punched a, a round hole in a solid cloud cover. But the interesting part of that shock was that based on what we were able to gather from as far as witness testimony, as this object shot straight up, what was missing was a sonic boom. I found that especially interesting because of uh, an episode that I talked about on a on an older version of the older episode of the Paracast where I have a sighting from my life where I watched a disc go from being absolutely stationary to full acceleration, to full speed, and it shot straight up. And what I remember, well, one of the things that really stuck out in my mind at the time was not only the appearance of something going from a perfect, you know, hovering standstill position to full speed. Our eyes are not used to seeing that. But the other thing that really I remember very distinctly is that it did this silently, also not creating any kind of sonic boom. And, and what that seems to suggest is that at the moment that the, these disks will accelerate like that, that all of a sudden they are not subject to the same friction with the air that any kind of aircraft that we know of relies on in order to fly. It almost suggests uh, that the craft, as part of what it's doing, is, is, and again, you know, nobody knows any of this for sure, but it almost seems like what it's doing is literally bending space-time in front of it, to some extent negating what we normally think of as the physical construct of reality. So I think that, that that actually sort of corroborates the idea that certainly as part of what these craft are doing as they move is playing, maybe playing with a different set of physical laws at that moment that allow them to do what they do. The way that ties into the interdimensional, you know, people talk about the interdimensional theory, and I'm curious about your thought about this, it seems to me like if you had a craft that could potentially fast travel faster than light, that one of the, the byproducts of that, one of the side effects, is that you. It's, it would seem to me, based on my understanding of physics, that if you move faster than light, you, you might get interdimensional travel capabilities as part of that process. Does that resonate with you at all? Um, I know I've thrown a lot at you there. There have been experiments about transmission of information faster than, than light. Mm -hmm. uh, there were experiments uh, just a few months ago in, in uh, Köln in Germany where a, a lab reported that they, they transmitted a piece of music faster than light. Um, that doesn't necessarily violate dimensionality. Well, I'm, you know, I'm way over my head in the physics here. But in the case of what you described as a sighting, it's not just information that was, was transmitted, presumably it's matter. Now, transmitting right. information is one thing, and there are, you know, there are cute things you can do with a phase of the signal and so on to make it appear that it's there faster than light, even though it really doesn't violate the, you know, the, the, the rules about, uh, about uh, the speed of light. But to transmit objects would be something completely different. Right. And the, the range of phenomena that are described in connection with UFOs disappearing, you know, in some cases they disappear very rapidly, but in other cases they just disappear on the spot. 
exactly. Uh, in other words, they become sort of transparent. There, there is one case where a, um, I don't remember in which uh, exactly the circumstances, but a, a soldier or a, um, a law enforcement officer saw an object and shot at it three times. And the first bullet hit metal, and he could hear something that sounded like the bullet hitting metal. Right. The second bullet had the sound of somebody shooting at a phone book, and the third uh, bullet went through uh, thin air. Hmm. Uh, the object hadn't moved. It just wasn't there anymore. Now, that's a little bit more difficult to do than uh, you know what happened at O'Hare. Right. Uh, what happened at O'Hare, you could argue, well, it went faster than the eye could follow it, but that doesn't mean it broke the sound barrier. You could argue that it was a craft. I mean, at that point, you're free to speculate. It maybe it created a field ahead of it right. so that it pushed the air away so that it, it never really created, you know, never hit the barrier. Right. Uh, I mean, there are different uh, different things that have been proposed to explain why an object might go faster than, uh, you know, the, the, the speed of sound without creating a sonic boom. And again, um, going through the speed of sound is one thing, going through the speed of light is quite another. Sure, of course. One of the things we haven't talked about yet this evening is... Are, are some of your thoughts and theories, and let's let's not make them theories. We'll just make them thoughts for now, so that we don't commit you to them. <laughs> but uh, one of the there's a there's a, a specific line that stands out, and um, I believe it's the end of uh, Revelations. That could be the end of the Dimensions, where there's a term I found most fascinating, and, and I've, I've not heard you talk about it really ever. You mentioned the term fractal beings. And, and I find that quite fascinating. Could you perhaps elaborate a little on what you mean when you say fractal beings, that maybe this is what we're dealing with, perhaps? Well, uh, I was trying to illustrate a situation where you might have a form of consciousness that sort of straddles the dimensions. Uh, you know, the only example of consciousness we we can experiment with uh, reliably is, is our own, mm -hmm. and uh, our own is, is given by the limitations of our mind, of our brain. There could be many, many other forms of consciousness, and we shouldn't assume, we shouldn't project human consciousness on other beings that might come from other places in the universe and might might be able to to move across dimensions. If they do that, they could come from the Earth, they could come from the future, they could come from the past, they could come, as, as Dr. Heineck loved to say, from a, another universe uh, five minutes ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and you're the David B.A.
This is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney having a very fascinating session with Dr. Jacques Vallée, who has been studying UFOs for a long, long time, not since the Stone Age. I wanted to clear a few things up there. Not that long. Only I have been around since the Stone Age. You know, I think, what was it now that Brad Steiger says he's known me since the dinosaurs ruled the earth or something like that. Is that what he says, David? I would not attempt to put words into Mr. Steiger's mouth. <laughs> Jacques, when we mention interdimensional, um, let's call it a hypothesis for now. One of the things that uh, that does seem interesting, if you start to, to get into those waters, it, it seems like certainly you've received a, a good amount of criticism from the mainstream of ufological study. Um, in bringing that in bringing that reference up, we're not going to hold you to this. But do you think perhaps the study of the UFO phenomenon as a nuts and bolts thing, as a nuts and bolts in that framework, do you think maybe we've reached the limit of what we can actually discover with that approach? And do you feel that there's a good possibility maybe we can further our knowledge by looking at alternate theories, or or you know, is it a thing where? You're doing this because you've exhausted, perhaps, the number of solutions that potentially come out of the nuts and bolts theory, or is it really just about the fact that that you feel that the the evidence doesn't fit the nuts and bolts theory? Well, it doesn't fit just the nuts and bolts theory, which is the extraterrestrial, you know, the first level ETH, uh, first level extraterrestrial hypothesis, which says these are aliens who have evolved on another planet somewhere in another solar system and they've built these advanced spacecraft and that's what we see here. That doesn't work. Now, having said that, we have not exhausted the physical um, analysis. Uh, that's only one of the main one of the main characteristics. Um, Dr. Eric Davis and I have uh, proposed a, a six-level model of the phenomenon, saying you have to take all six levels together if you're going to make sense of it. And, and the first level is physical. I mean, we and here it's too early to come up with theories. We again, the the science hasn't been done. Uh, we need a lot more documentation about traces. And uh, the, the biggest frustration about traces is that witnesses give you samples and they expect you to have them analyzed, and so then there is no place to analyze them, or there is no money to analyze any of that. So uh, every UFO group in the world has uh, shelves full of things that really should be looked at, should be analyzed, should be correlated. Um, the, very often uh, you get there too late to do good measurements on, on the ground of traces. I'm studying a case uh, now that has all those components and has uh, remarkable traces that were left in, in the field. And uh, I'm going back and, and reinvestigating that case. I think that's very important. I mean, you, you have to start from there, but you can't. That's not the the end of it. You you still have to look at the things that were sort of metaphysical, uh, the things that were described in terms of physics but were impossible in terms of physics, because that's where that's where it becomes interesting. And then you have to look at the the psychology of of the situation, the sociology of the situation, and also what happened physiologically to the witness if he or she has had some uh, secondary effects. So 
all, it has to be, again, it has to be interdisciplinary. And only when we've done that a few hundred times, uh, very, very well, very soberly, are we going to be in a position to start uh, thinking about theory? You've got some new printings of some of your classic books coming out from anomalous books. Which ones are they? Uh, dimensions, confrontations, and revelations. Uh, they form a, a, a trilogy together. I'm not planning to reprint some of my other, my other books, like Passport to Magonia or, or uh, Invisible College, because I think they are dated, and I think most of the useful material is in those those three books. I expect to also uh, reprint Messengers of Deception because I think it's it's one of the, the books that have uh, stood the, the test of time and probably is more important now than, uh, than it was when it was first written 20 years ago. The books again, Dimensions, Confrontations and Revelations from Anomalous Books. Jacques Vallée, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Powercast. Thank you. Thanks for your questions. Okay. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy, a thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is going to be a Monday morning quarterback session where we don't attack the guest. I don't think so. I, I'm going to. I'm ready to attack us. I have so many questions I never got to ask that uh, now all I'll do is look forward to having Dr. Valet on again. I have a lot of questions. We didn't even touch upon the South American sightings work he's done, which is of, of huge interest to me. Of course, um, also, there was a whole list of questions that our listeners had asked in our message boards, and I don't think we got to too many of those either. I think we have to have him back about four times to cover this. <laughs> so now, having read his books, and I read his books years and years ago, not before yeah. you were born, let's not age him that far, but I read his books a long time ago, having met the man virtually, what is your feeling about it all? 
My feeling is that Jacques Vallée is probably closer to actually getting a handle on any meaningful understanding of this than anyone else. I, I really, I really strongly feel that way. And after speaking with him, that feeling is is validated. He is asking the right questions. He is uh, approaching this from a scientific point of view, but yet having an open mind, not as open as so the brain falls out, but open enough to consider possibilities. And, uh, you know, Gene, the thing that I find most fascinating in the context of the social scene of the UFO world is that there are a lot of researchers that have very strong feelings about Valet. They, they have problems with a lot of his work, and that, to me, validates him more because of the fact that he, it doesn't sound to me like in any way he has preconceived notions of what this can be. This is something where he is displaying the kind of intellectual honesty that I really think is essential to any deeper understanding of this. Boy, you know, you talk about uh, two hours going quick or less than two hours going quick. I mean, I could easily see spending, you know, a month of our, of our episodes talking to this man. I think he is a true repository of useful information. And what I what I really liked about him is that, you know, sort of as my own approach about this, where I have a lot of thoughts about this topic, but I don't feel I have any definitive answers. I think that uh, that Jacques Vallée is uh, is very true to that feeling. He's and not dogmatic at all. I mean, with so many people we talk to on the show know what's going on, know what's causing these things. And here's somebody who's willing to embrace ideas that have merit, that can be sustained by the evidence, by the weight of evidence. And he's not looking into this as he's trying to prove they're extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial or crypto-terrestrial. He just wants to find out what the heck is going on. And that's a rarity in the UFO field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's a guy who's been involved with it for so long. And as he learns more, his feelings about the, the situation change. His postulations change over time. They... As he learns more, he realizes the, the, that perhaps his earlier positions, you know, from from what I've researched about uh, this this man, he was a strong proponent of the extraterrestrial hypothesis early on. Uh, as he looked at more data, he gradually came to the conclusion that, uh, as he mentioned on the show, the ETH was simply not. It didn't seem to match the data. It wasn't. It wasn't expansive enough. Well, and, you know, um, Doctor Heinick was hinting that very same thing the few times I interviewed him towards the end of his life. He was saying the same thing, that he could see that the UFO mystery was more expansive and that the simple explanations, and frankly speaking, I think when you say they are from Zeta Reticuli or another star system, that's very simplistic because you're basically ignoring half the event, two-thirds of the event. There are always more things happening around a UFO sighting, but if you're there, as he says, just collecting information and filling out little forms. You know, he doesn't fill out the forms. You fill out the forms that certain UFO organizations, MUFON, have. Well, they're looking for one thing. You know, they're trying to get evidence of physical objects from outer space. And where can we figure out what's really going on? The question I also have is that Dr. Vallée is... I think a very rare breed here. How many people in the UFO field are there who can come up to him, who can work with someone like him to find out what's going on? Well, and that's part of the frustration, because you would think that people who were actually 
looking for answers that would be inherent to their approach versus protecting pet theories and look gene you know we've been doing the paracast for just a i guess it's a little over two years now i come into this all of this with uh, a range of experiences with maybe some thoughts about what this could be but uh, i don't have any hard answers and i don't have i don't have i personally a dogmatic approach to this i think that these are these are great mysteries that we want to know more about. I'm not even convinced that we can understand what this is about. I've always been, I think, in many ways, a pragmatist about the limits of human knowledge. Um, and I think that's really important. You know, as someone who teaches technology, I'm the kind of teacher who always looks forward to being taught something by my students. You know, a lot of teachers are not like that. A lot of teachers go into a classroom where they want complete control, they want to mold the students, and they feel like the students are, are there for them to develop, that essentially once they get a degree or a doctorate or what have you, that they are developed enough. Well, also, um, it's a question of the teacher, I think, wants a student to be maybe their protege. Yeah, well, that's In their fine. image, they're saying, we want you to become us. That's what you go and have children for, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't know that that's Is what, that what I did it for. I, oh, okay. Well, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, in, in many ways, I think that's you know part of what the kids' trip is about, and that's why I don't have any. But a good teacher is the teacher that is involved with the class, who is willing to learn from their students. And listen, you know, uh, when a student teaches you something, I think that pays homage to you. If you're the teacher, you know, if you, I always like to think that when I teach. And last semester, for example, I taught at Yale University. I taught a class at the drama school about technology. And um, my approach to teaching has always been to give my students critical thinking tools and to teach them to learn how to learn. I'm much less interested in things like rote memorization. Even when it comes to learning like a technical process in a program like Photoshop, the very first thing I do is I say to them, you know, you take any task that you could do in Photoshop, I can show you three or four different ways to do it. Is one way better than the other? I say usually what you do is you have to make cho a choice between convenience slash speed and control. All right. If you're going to do something fast, you're going to give up some level of control for it. If you're willing to spend more time with something, you get a greater level of control, but it takes you more time to do it. And so what I like to teach my students is how to look at a problem and think of ways to creatively come up with solutions to that problem, but be adaptable. And that adaptability in, in, in problem solving, I think that is something that we lack as a society in general. Clearly, from our discussion with Jacques Vallée, this is someone who is a creative thinker who is addressing problems in real time. I mean, the only preconceived notion that sounds to me like Vallée has is that he wants to look at all of the possibilities. For a man who's been involved in this for so long and, and who has had, I guess he would refer to them as spirited discussions, uh, maybe, maybe that's a nice way to say it, but this is someone who doesn't sound to me like he's got any real hard feelings, at least he didn't express them, where, I mean, I can't say that about some of the people I've interacted with in this quote-unquote field. You know, I, some of these people I think are just, are just nuts. Valet is incredibly diplomatic. I don't think he's going to come out and say something like that, though if you read his books, he, he does make certain uh, little comments about some of the people that we've actually interacted with on the show, and, and I think that uh, he does it in a very nice diplomatic way, but sort of, you know, he's respectful, but critical at the same time, and 
it's that balance. I mean, I, I strive for a balance like that. I don't think I'm anywhere near it. Which personalities do you recall him mentioning in the book? It's been a long, long time since. Well, I, I mean, in in Revelations, he has some really fascinating things to say about. Uh, well, for example, John Lear, someone who I think is, uh, you know, I'll be kind and say he's a disinformation agent. But if I was to be mean, I'd say he's just completely crazy. In Revelations, there's a good amount of description by uh, by Valet on his interactions with Lear. And um, he's very nice about it. He actually says that he respects Lear's accomplishments as a pilot, which I would have to agree with. I think that's exactly correct. Uh, you know, if you look at Lear's history in, in aviation, it's undeniable. The man, you know, he, that guy has flown more planes and more different types of planes than just about anybody. At the same time, some of the statements he makes about the field are just either A, he's nuts, or B, he's purposefully spreading disinformation, I mean, or C, he just gets off on being a prankster. You read Valet's stuff about Lear, and, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that Valet, to me, and, and I'm sorry we didn't get to ask him about this, but, you know, a good amount of revelations is spent on well, uh, it's revelations, alien contact, and human deception. And that part of deception is critical because I, I know that just in the work I've done with Jeff Ritzman on the analysis of the O'Hare images, we encountered a level of deception that was very curious and seems to be sort of a thread that, that runs underneath of all of this that, you know, like, like Valet refers to in uh, the book Dimensions, the, the triple cover-up. Another thing we didn't get to ask him about. <laughs> now, there's all this stuff that I, we, you know, let, let's just devote the next four shows to Jacques Valet. When we'll you know really what? I'll tell you what we'll do here. Why don't you drop him a line and yeah. find out when he'd like to come back. Let's see if we can allocate another session because I think we have so many questions to ask and so many issues that he's raised. It is very important for a full understanding of what's going on here. And then I think on a larger scale, we ought to start looking and see how many people out there are the thinkers who would work with a Dr. Valet to get answers about what's going on. I know a few of the people we've talked to on the show, I think, would love the opportunity to do it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.